Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 149. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend It Fintech. This episode of the Lend Academy podcast is sponsored by Nelnet Loan Servicing. When you need flexible servicing you can trust, you won't find a better partner. Developed specifically for the growing needs of fintech platforms, Nelnet Loan Servicing can handle anything you need, from payments to communications to collections. And it comes from an investment-grade partner with more than 40 years of servicing experience. To see how they can help your company scale, visit nelnetfintech.com. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome back Frank Rotman. He is a founding partner of QED Investors, and he's been around fintech since the very beginning. Now, he spent some time in banking. He spent some time on the VC side. He's really in a unique position to sort of take a step back, see where we're at today, and see where we're going as an industry. And so what he did was he created this, what I think is a seminal white paper called The Copernican Revolution in Banking. And he's really bringing forth some pretty interesting ideas, ideas that I haven't heard before. And he presented this white paper for the first time at Lendit in early April. And I wanted to get him on the show to really tease the the ideas out a bit. And he's got some fascinating thoughts on where banking is going. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Frank. Glad to be here. So let's just get started. I like to sort of give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself so they can kind of get some context for our conversation. So why don't you tell, tell the listeners who don't know you what you've, um, what you've done um, so far in your career? Sure, sure. Well, I've been in and around the fintech ecosystem for just shy of 25 years now, with most of the time being spent at two companies. One was Capital One uh, and spent about 13 years there. And then for the past 10 years, uh, have been building QED investors alongside some of my former Capital One compatriots. Mm-hmm. So then what, what was the, the catalyst that sort of caused you to, you know, just you and Nigel and uh, to, to start QED after spending so much time at Capital One? What was the, what was the reason for doing that? So in, in 2004, Nigel left Capital One, had transformed it from a regional bank called Signet Bank, into Capital One, and had been spent 10 years actually building it into an international bank of, of size. And after 10 years of going on that journey, it was time to see something else. And, you know, he left Capital One to explore what else might be next. I left in 2005 for similar reasons. After spending, you know, the better part of, you know, 13 years there at his side from Signet Bank to Capital One, you know, it's nice to see things at a very deep level and build a company up, but you feel like you're getting stale after a while and want to see something in the outside world. Mm-hmm. So I left to build a student lending company. And after doing that for a couple of years, joined back up with Nigel to form QED Investors. And, you know, the origin of it was really just staring at what was out there that was interesting. And we felt like our operating skills might actually be helpful in the investment community. Uh, we might be able to guide some of the smaller companies uh, and help turn them into bigger companies with some of our war wounds and hopefully help them prevent some of the big mistakes that might be coming and might help them, you know, accelerate their growth path given the things that we had seen in the past as mm-hmm. operators. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you, you certainly did uh, pick uh, some some really successful companies there. I mean, you look at your portfolio, you've got, um, you know, you were pretty early in many of the biggest names in, in fintech today, such as, you know, Prosper, SoFi, Avant, Green Sky, Credit Karma, I could keep going on. There's there's many, many companies here that uh, that the listeners would recognize. So back in those earlier days, uh, you know, what were you, you know, I guess what what sort of prompted you to make an investment in you know some of the companies that I've mentioned there is there was there a sort of a, an investment thesis you were you were going by that kind of helped you pick some of the you know the the, the biggest players in fintech today Yeah. It's a good question. I mean we're we're very thematic investors. So we we don't just wait for a company to hit our desk uh with a deck that came through a banker and say is this a good company or not. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what's happening in the ecosystem, trying to understand the individual company, try to understand how they're going to be positioned, you know, seven years or 10 years in the future, because that's how long it takes to actually build some of these businesses. And, and really, at that point, they're just getting started. So we, we did a lot of work, you know, talking to banks and seeing what was happening in the ecosystem. And we had a big theme that kind of emerged. And the theme was the fragmentation of the lending value chain. And, you know, in the past, it was impossible to make a loan if you didn't have a bank charter and you didn't have, you know, low-cost deposits or access to the securitization market. You know, you needed to be able to originate and service and do pretty much everything in the entire ecosystem, the entire value chain. And, you know, little by little, we saw fragmentation happening with the biggest innovation being separating uh, the balance sheet and the funding mechanism from the actual bank charter and the origination machine. So it was possible to be a specialty originator where you were just really good at finding customers. You were good at guiding them through, you know, better UX, UI. And then really it was an option about where the loan went. You know, you could balance sheet it and there were plenty of options for that. Or you could sell it. Uh, you could fractionally sell it. You know, a lot of things were available in the marketplace. And because of this emergence of specialty originators, we started to talk to all of them. And uh, it, it might be a surprise to you and some other people, but at the peak, which would be in the 2013, 14, and maybe even early 15 time frame, um, we are seeing over 200 new lending companies a year. Mm, and wow. uh, you know, getting that vista into the ecosystem, it's really just a matter of picking the the best management teams that have the best product suites and you know, we're assembling the pieces in the right way. So we're in a pretty privileged position. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, the, la the last time we chatted on the podcast was about three years ago. So it was sort of at the end of that um, of that period. And, you know, we've really come into, I'd say, you know, the, well, capital availability has ebbed and flowed. I think in the early days, there wasn't really anyone doing what you were doing and and you were one of the sort of major providers of, of capital I think to the space and then then suddenly everyone got into the space and if you had a half decent business plan you, you got funded and then you know it, it, it flowed away and so it feels like you know Capital availability 2016, 2017 was not nearly as readily available as it, as it was in previous years. So can you just give me a, give us, give the listeners a, a, a snapshot of how you feel about, you know, capital availability for fintech platforms today? Yeah, I, I think the truth is that plenty of capital is still available for great companies. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about capital being a little bit less available, 
it's less available in crowded spaces or in spaces where the business plans that are emerging are more kind of me too and copycat uh, business plans right where they're solving a problem that others have already started to tackle mm-hmm. so you know i i've written about this before you know in my blog but really it's about kind of waves of innovation that take place and the first wave is a bunch of innovators latching onto some new theme and in this case it was the fragmentation of the value chain and really competing against the incumbents and you know competing against the incumbents is really just a battle be- between can the incumbents wake up fast enough to prevent some of the smaller players from actually figuring out how to crack distribution Mm-hmm. You know, if the smaller players figure out how to crack distribution and can prove they're good at what they do faster than the incumbents wake up, then they build big companies. You know, so that was really going on in the first wave. But when you get to a second wave where you're not just competing against the incumbents, you're now competing against the first wave of innovators that are ahead of you in terms of results. And as we know, results are very important in a lending business. You know, you need a track record in order to attract the right capital. But the second wave of innovation in innovative companies are really attacking not just the incumbents, but the first wave players that are now at scale with track record. Mm-hmm. So it's a much more difficult thing to do unless you have a truly new business model or a way of approaching the market. Right. That makes sense. So then today, when you're looking to make a new investment, what is it that you're looking for that's going to really cause you to open your checkbook? And what areas are you looking for that, that you're looking to invest in? Well, QED isn't just investing in lending companies. And I know the, mm-hmm. the listeners to this podcast might be more interested you know, in the lending side of the world. But we are investing in the asset side of the consumer balance sheet. We're looking very deeply at reg tech, you know, things that are making banks more efficient behind the scenes. You know, we're looking at just a variety of things outside of just lending. Um, but within the lending space, you know, it's very important that, you know, any new lending company is attacking a real problem that in some ways isn't served very well. And, you know, not served well could be everything from user experience and friction, uh, which mortgage would be a good example of that, because you could say that it's an incredibly well-served industry, but with you know, really archaic technology and processes that lead to, you know, 45 day, you know, processes that people are very frustrated by the time they get to the end of it. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, today's process works, but it's a very frustrating one. Right. But there are other spaces that are completely unserved or are really growth areas, you know, areas like non-elective medical is a very interesting category that Uh, I think it's an unfortunate truth that it might end up being the fifth major asset class in the country after mortgage, auto, student, and credit card. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to be a a big area of growth just out of uh, necessity. And things like commercial and consumer solar, where the trends are undeniable about what's happening. So, you know, I think it all starts with identifying a real problem that is underserved in some way and really attacking it. Right. Right. Okay. So I want to switch gears now and actually spend quite a bit of time talking about your your new paper um, you presented at Lendit recently, the Copernican Revolution in Banking. And you know, this is I don't know how many you've actually done in the past. It's, you, you know, you've done several in depth uh, you know white papers um, on this industry. And so I wanted to I wanted to 
talk about this one in particular it was it was it's super interesting to me you're always kind of feel like you're always at the sort of ahead of the curve shall we say and talking about what's coming down the down the track so let's Firstly, when I saw this, the Copernican revolution in banking, now I'd heard about Copernicus, but I couldn't remember who he was. <laughs> so why don't you explain who, who was Copernicus and why he's important? Yeah, so Copernicus was a mathematician and astronomer from the early 1500s. He, he formulated a model of the universe that placed the sun rather than the earth at the center of the universe. So he was the first one to really challenge some of the notions that it had to be a fact that the Earth was at the center of the universe. And it was a very profound insight that he had because it was a paradigm shift from a geocentric model to a heliocentric model. And it was only possible by challenging some of the well-held beliefs of the time. Mm -hmm. And these were so well-held beliefs that they had been around for about 1,500 years. And astronomers had been doing a lot of hard work to try to fit all of the data that they saw to the model that they believed in a priori instead of challenging the a priori beliefs so that the model would work better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's, it's, so it's the Copernican revolution in banking. So obviously what you're, what you're saying here is that there are some very firmly held beliefs in banking that, uh, that haven't really been challenged enough. So what are these you know, firmly held beliefs in, in banking today? Yeah, it, it's interesting because we've spent many, many years in the world of banking. We're actually reformed bankers ourselves. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to small banks to very large banks. And one of the commonalities when you talk to, you know, banks, especially those with a lot of branches, is that they all say the same thing, which is that they have to manage a near complete or complete suite of banking products. And they have to serve all clients at all channels, all times, because they believe that that's what a bank is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So this, this a priori belief that you need to be all things to all people is a, a bankrupt strategy in a lot of ways, because the chances of actually managing those products and managing them well are, are precisely zero, given the breadth of product that some banks have. And I, I did outline this in the, the paper a bit. But we've talked to enough banks and really mapped out the suite of banking products that a typical, you know, uh, regional bank or money center bank might offer, and, and it's approaching, you know, 350 products. Wow! Right? It's not like it's a small product suite, mm -hmm. and the chances of them being world class at all 350 are precisely zero. <laughs> Right, right, okay, um, and obviously we'll link to the the new paper in the show notes accompanying this podcast. So I wanted this hone in though. Along with that, it seems like you have this slide where you, you show the return on equity in uh, for, for uh, major U.S. banks, and it's it's interesting because it seems like you know two thousand eight. Obviously, we had the financial crisis. You know, return on equity you know went actually negative you know, just right after that, but. So we had we had this period of of several decades where return on equity was solidly above ten percent. You've got this ten percent line in your in your slide here. So I'm curious about. It seems like they were doing something right pre two thousand and eight because they were growing very nicely, providing really nice returns to investors, and then suddenly something shifted in two thousand and eight, and they've never been able to get back to the pre crisis levels. So what do you think happened there? 
You know, I think there are quite a few things happening, and that's part of the confusion in the banking ecosystem because it's very easy to blame the reduction in ROE on increased regulatory scrutiny and mm-hmm. capital requirements. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that that is happening, right? That is not a minor effect on the, the return on equity within banks. I mean, there's a very large delevering uh, that happened post-crisis. The regulators asking the banks to actually hold more capital. And that's real. I mean, that lowers your ROE because it means that uh, your equity has to work a lot harder to produce returns. Right. Um, so there is delevering, and delevering actually comes with de-risking as well. So it's not lost on me that uh, the the right part of the chart that you're referring to actually is a less risky banking ecosystem than on the left when things were in the green and very profitable. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a piece of it. But there's a lot more that's going on. You can look at the fines in the ecosystem. You can look at the tech debt in the ecosystem. You can look at the branch system that is underutilized and, you know, is just very expensive if you actually look at it relative to what it's producing. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a more profound shift that's hidden by just looking at this chart. And, you know, this profound shift is that information is becoming more available and channels are becoming more available to consumers and to small business and commercial clients. And you see this in every industry where data becomes more abundant and shopping becomes easier, that uh, margins start eroding and concentration of customers end up in the hands of the people with best-in-class product. Mm-hmm. I think the car industry is a good example of this, you know, which is a, an analogy that I was using to show what happens with perfect information. And 20 years ago, when you were shopping for a car, I mean, consumers had limited information about the car price and had to really work hard to figure out uh, what they would pay for a car. And that really resulted in consumers haggling with dealers and the dealers actually having more information about what the car was worth and, and what they would sell it for than the consumer. And if you really go back 20 years, I mean, profits on cars were it was an amazingly profitable you know, business model. And if you look at just the past seven or eight years, uh, with more price transparency, with people knowing almost with full certainty about what they should pay for a car with the advent of players like TrueCar and AutoTrader and, you know, even blue book values for used cars, the margins have compressed significantly. Mm -hmm. You know, just in 2010, the the margin of selling a car was in the four and a half percent range. And now it's in the two and a half percent range, you know, less than eight years later. And if anything, it's just falling. And the same thing is happening in banking, where you know credit cards are a good example of this, where 20 years ago you had to wait for offers to come in your mailbox. I mean, I was very familiar with that model, you know, having been part of Capital One. Mm-hmm. And you look today and you have full knowledge about what products you can, you're likely to be approved for, what your options are. You have the ability to compare all of those products. And it's not just about the bank's coming to you or you walking into a branch office and applying for a narrow suite of products, you have full transparency with players like Credit Karma and NerdWallet and LendingTree and CreditCards.com. There are plenty of places to go today to get full transparency on what your options are. And, you know, that means that there's going to be a concentration of consumers in the hands of the best-in-class products. And, you know, the the best-in-class players are going to scale, and as they scale, they're going to steal more of the best customers. And anyone who's running a subscale business that's attracting 
you know, less than the best customers are really going to struggle from a profitability standpoint. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So then I'm, I'm curious also about what you think of the, the new online players that are coming on board. I mean, we've had Ally Bank has been around for a while, Synchrony Bank. Um, now you've got Marcus uh, by Goldman Sachs. They're all out there competing, you know, certainly on the deposit side. You have a slide there on, in your deck that uh, talks about, you know, the different, you know, these are, these are the leading companies and Capital One as well is up there with, um, you know, really competing for deposits in a very aggressive way. And, and again, as you say, the consumer has, has great transparency into this, into what is the best offer. So, but, but beyond that, I'm curious to think what, what is, what is the impact on, of the online banks coming in, in recent years? Yeah, I think it's more of a, a trend and a signal that the world is changing than anything profound about any given player. So I, I really like Ally, I like Synchrony, I think Marcus is fantastic, but it's really just uh, a signal mm-hmm. that the world of banking is is being disrupted. And you're seeing a lot of this in Europe with digital banks that don't have the legacy infrastructure that really are able to design the UX, UI uh, for consumers to give them access to banking at their fingertips 24-7 instead of needing a, a bank branch system that might actually be seen as an albatross to some of the, the bigger banks. It's really a cost center. And, you know, if you compare a digital bank with the ability to originate deposits through non-branch channels, and you look at, you know, Capital One and Goldman and, and Synchrony and Ally as examples of that, Discover is another one, you know, they're able to have uh, best-in-breed deposit capabilities along with, you know, best-in-breed digital capabilities, and it's a powerful combination. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure is. So, I want to I want to um, go to the you know the the meat of the of, of your paper here, and you say on one of the slides that um, the time is right for banks to take a Copernican leap, and then you you sort of describe that. So, tell us, tell the listeners, what is the Copernican leap in banking? So, the Copernican leap is really challenging the a priori concept that a bank needs to be all things to all players at all times, you know, in all channels. And the Copernican Leap is really about choosing what you want to be world-class at and really putting the resources behind those products to make sure that you can compete with best in breed. And for everything else, it's actually a a pretty interesting uh, new view of the world where a bank could see themselves as a channel into their own customers. Mm -hmm. And instead of just manufacturing products and making them available to customers, they could curate uh, the best-in-breed products that they're not manufacturing themselves and make them available to customers by being a channel. And it's a big leap because a lot of banks say they have to own the customer. Right. And the question is why. You know, these are customers that are going elsewhere anyway. You know, they're already shopping for best-in-breed products. And if a bank is unable to manufacture that best-in-breed product, then why not act on behalf of your own customer uh, source the best in breed product, and instead of having a very low ROE, you know, very difficult to manage, you know, business line that struggles, you can be a distribution channel and actually get revenue through, you know, being a marketing channel into your own customer. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a pretty big leap. Yeah, it is. But it's interesting because you're seeing some of that in the UK with the, like some of the, uh, you know, they've got open banking there now and you see some of the, the new digital banks kind of taking that, that approach from, from the get go saying we are not going to be best in class 
at all things. We're going to take one or two things where we're going to be great and we're going to, everything else is going to be available in our marketplace sort of thing. And it's, so it's interesting, but I, I want to go through, you said there's going to be four types of players that are going to emerge. And I actually want to go and sort of tease out each one here. And the first one you talk about is transactional banks. So is that what you were talking about there where, uh, or actually, just, why don't you just describe exactly what you mean? So a transactional bank is actually a bank that makes the decision that it doesn't have to be a distributor of products at all. Uh, they might not have to touch the end customer at all. They really have the banking infrastructure. Uh, they have the legal right and the skills to manufacture best-in-class products. And they can take that legal right and skill and scale it massively by making those products available to other organizations that could be banks, could be credit unions, or it even could be non-banks, mm -hmm. which would include you know, some of the fintechs, but also include some of the non-bank players that are very large brands. Mm -hmm. And you know, the uh, analogy that I make here, which seems to be resonating with, with people that I, I've talked to, is that you know, 10 years ago, if you asked people about you know, their, their rack space and hosting and you know, everything that deals with web services, if you said 10 years ago, do you use AWS, uh, your tech people would look at you and call you crazy and say, there's no reason why you should do that. This is a competitive skill. It's something that we need to do. We need to control our own data. You know, we need to control access to it. We need to control all our own hosting. And 10 years later, if you ask those same people or whoever is in charge in big organizations, are you using AWS? They would call you crazy to not use it. Right. Right. And what's really happened is that AWS has taken, uh, they, they now have, by the way, a million plus customers, and it's generating you know, north of $15 billion a year worth of revenue. I mean, it's, it's a giant, giant business. And what they've done is they've taken a million cost centers from within small to large organizations, and they've combined it into one giant profit center mm -hmm. that can reduce the cost to every single player that they're serving, increase the service levels and still net a profit when these would have been a million cost centers, you know, within the entire ecosystem of e-commerce and not just e-commerce, but commerce in general. And if you think about banking right now, we have 5,900 or so financial institutions. And that means that you have 5,900 uh, potential manufacturers of products and you have a lot of core systems behind it. And a lot of them are doing exactly the same things. So there's an opportunity for transactional banks to emerge that just are very good at things like ledger accounts. You know, why do we have 5,900 systems of ledger for uh, core checking and savings accounts? Mm -hmm. right? Why couldn't that be done at scale with, you know, much better regulatory oversight, a lot of controls in place, you know, all the KYC AML done at scale and done extremely well and really just control the inflows and outflows of money on behalf of all these organizations. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point because we have – so how much productivity is lost because everybody's duplicating everybody else and no one is all that good at it, or very few people are all that good at it. So you make a very good point there. So I want to go on to the second, the second um, player, you know, gen pop banks, which I presume means general population, but what, what do you mean by gen pop banks? Yeah, so the, the gen pop banks, I mean, they, they are going to serve the general population with a very broad suite of products. And you can think about your typical bank that you walk into today as a gen pop bank. But the difference in this new world is that instead of manufacturing all of the products themselves, 
the best run gen pop banks are going to wind down a lot of the products that they have, or they're going to find third parties that can do it better than they can and white label it on behalf of their customers. Mm-hmm. So instead of having 350 products and do most of them, you know, I mean, they're, they're decent at most of them, but they're not world-class at practically any of them. They could combine their resources or amass them to really tackle a few categories well, mm-hmm. uh, be a specialist in those categories, and then be a curator of products on behalf of their customers and become a channel into them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then, so then the next type is um, vertical banks. Explain what that one is. Yeah, vertical bank uh, is really a bank that serves a very specific segment. And there you don't need to offer 300 or 350 products. A lot of these vertical banks might only need six or eight products. But the products interweave with each other in a way that, you know, the bank really can be a relationship-oriented bank and understand the needs of their customers and offer them very specialized products. Mm-hmm. You know, an example would be an agriculture bank. You know, the understanding of a farm is very complicated. And there are products like farm equipment leases and agriculture real estate loans. Uh, believe it or not, there's a thing called a livestock loan. You know, these are things that an agriculture bank would be better served at offering than a a general population bank. And you can think about a lot of other verticals like small businesses or landlords that there are products that could be uh, targeted specifically towards them that all work together uh, because there's a deep understanding of, of the client. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so finally, you talk about non-bank players, but it's interesting in your in your deck you you hone in on the the non-bank players like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google. I mean, what, what, so explain exactly who you're referencing when you say non-banks. Yeah, so non-bank players, if you really want to get into the technicality of it, are any player that does not have the legal right and skills to manufacture products. Mm-hmm. Right. So banking is actually a regulated service, right? Whether it's the movement of money or the storage of money or uh, the ability to make loans, you know, there's a bunch of regulatory approval that needs to come with it. And non-banks are just players that have access to engaged customers that don't have that regulatory right to actually serve the customers with banking products. So it could range from some of the fintechs that are partnering with uh, some of the transactional banks of today, like you know the web banks and the cross river banks, uh, but it also could be players like Google and Amazon and Facebook that have massive numbers of engaged customers, and they're a great distribution channel for banking services. Okay, so then just oh, I want to go back to the you know, the, the beginning of this interview where we talked about some of the. You know, the players you've invested in these are you know these are online lending platforms and for the most part uh, credit karma excluded but where how are they going to are they really obviously they're part of the non-bank players where do you see their role in the future yeah so there, there's no generic answer you know the various players uh, range from specialists in fact almost all of them are specialists of, of one form or another. So Green Sky, as an example, is a point-of-sale specialty originator that really is a, a tech company that's connecting merchants and consumers with the, the loans from banks to help, help them sell more goods. Mm-hmm. So you know, Green Sky is really expanding vertically, tackling 
you know, not just the home improvement space, but they've expanded into uh, elective medical and a few other categories and scaling incredibly rapidly. But they've already partnered with banks, right? So there are a lot of partnerships that have emerged that really are precursor to this theme. Right. But I think you're going to see some of these players either align with transactional banks that are willing to offer them services. And again, we've seen versions of this start to emerge in the lending space with you know, Cross River Bank and Web Bank, you know, being able to deal with the regulatory needs of uh, some of the loan manufacturers that just don't have the legal right to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see more and more partnerships like that emerge. But you're also going to see some of the entities uh, become proper banks themselves right? and, and uh, do the work to get permission, right? The regulatory permission to offer their product and service without a transactional bank in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, SoFi is a good example of that where we'll see what happens in the future. But, you know, given all of the activity around them uh, originally applying for an ILC and, you know, looking at becoming a bank, they're really just a vertical bank, you know, supplying, uh, actually manufacturing uh, some products for a very distinct set of customers. And the next step is to have the regulatory right to do it without a partner in the middle. Right, right. Okay, well, we're going over time, but I do want to actually focus on this last point around the future. You have a slide that actually goes out through 2027. It's always bold to make predictions that far into the future. But would like you to sort of spend a little bit of time of like how this is going to play out. Yeah, so... Of course, it's difficult to project how fast things are going to happen, and it's more conceptual slide than anything else. But in the near term, which I've defined as the next one to three years, I I think we're going to see some of the large banks decide to partner with some of the non-banks. And once they start partnering with the non-banks to offer some of the banking services to their engaged customers, it really sets them up to become transactional banks where they might not own the end customer in the long run, but at scale, there's a lot of profit to be chased by very efficiently providing these banking services to you know, massive numbers of customers if you don't have to acquire them or retain them. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see this with you know, relationships like Amazon looking for a bank partner uh, to create a bunch of teenager checking accounts. Right. And whoever ends up winning that contract, you know, depending on how the profit actually works, you know, Amazon might end up taking most of the profit. But, you know, if there's a good relationship there, the transactional bank might not actually own the customer in the long run. It might be that Amazon is the one with the relationship long term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these banks, once they start providing the services for one or two players, it's not a leap for them to start offering it to many players. And those many players could include other banks. So in the next three to six years, some of the largest banks that have started to position themselves as transactional banks, they're going to start gaining scale. And, you know, scale starts the whole flywheel spinning that, you know, creates a profit machine and creates a moat where other people can't deliver the service the same way that you can, uh, where you'll be able to deliver it at lower cost and higher quality. You know, the same thing that Amazon did with AWS. Mm-hmm. And I think during this period of time, the banks are going to wake up and start to look at their product suite and figure out where they are efficient and where they aren't, you know, concentrate uh, their time and effort into the right products. And the best banks are going to feel comfortable offering other players uh, products and services and not have to manufacture everything. Right. 
And in the long run, which would be, you know, in, in, in this view, six to 10 years into the future, there really will be a few transactional banks that are, are mega powers. I mean, they're out there, you know, powering the entire banking ecosystem. Uh, you can think of an AWS of ledger accounts or an AWS of lending or an AWS of money movement and payments. So a few of these big players could emerge. And then the battle uh, for the customer intensifies where the best-in-class products are going to capture more and more customers and the players that continue to offer second-rate products are going to have subscale and low-profit organizations that ultimately need to be wound down or you know, are going to under-deliver returns. Right. Right. Well, I have to do it there, Frank. It's, a fast, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. And you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, uh, and sharing your thoughts with us. Well, I appreciate being here and uh, always happy to do it again uh, the next time I release a paper. Okay, great. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Okay, see ya. You know, I think everyone would agree that over the next 10 years, banking is going to look very different. But uh, Frank is sort of the first person that I've seen to really lay out sort of the evolution of what is going to happen. And of course, we'll find out sooner or later whether he was right or not. But I think one thing is for sure is that the banking is going to look very different in 10 years' time. And as I said on the show, that I think you know Europe is really starting to move in the direction that Frank is has laid out here. And I think I'll be surprised if if the USA doesn't follow suit. Now, obviously, he may not get everything right, but I think we will. We can all agree that banking is set to change, and I, I think some of these things that Frank puts forward here, I'll be very surprised if they don't happen. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. This episode of the Lend Academy podcast was sponsored by Nelnet Loan Servicing. When you need flexible servicing you can trust, you won't find a better partner. Developed specifically for the growing needs of fintech platforms, Nelnet Loan Servicing can handle anything you need, from payments to communications to collections. And it comes from an investment-grade partner with more than 40 years of servicing experience. To see how they can help your company scale, visit nelnetfintech.com.